Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. Our gospel reading is from Luke 24, verses 1 to 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces and bowed their faces to the ground. But at the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the women clothes by themselves. Then he went home, amazed at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Loving God, on this day we are there with those disciples, both unsure, but also anticipating, wondering if this could possibly be true. We give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word. We thank you that you're the God who desires to be known. And so we pray that you would help us to hear your word well today. We pray that you would bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds, that they would be acceptable in your sight. And we ask in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So gosh, this is a good day, Uh, and I mean kind of in the grand scheme of things good, essentially good down to the the roots good. I mean, it may may, may be that not much is going right for you right now. Uh, It may be that you watched the news this morning, which seems to be invariably bad. It may be that you woke up on the wrong side of the bed today, and, and you know, that's okay. Because feeling good doesn't, is not a prerequisite for this day, because However we've shown up here, we get to claim this day's goodness. Because we are here to say as clearly as we can, to remember if we've forgotten, to hear maybe for the first time, that the truth at the heart of the universe is that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. I know that the... uh, the, the mainline Protestant version of raising your hands and singing hallelujah is a, an earnest nod, and I saw some of those, so I'm going to say it again. We live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That's the good news, and there is none better. 
And of course, it's weird news. It might be unsettling news. It might be awfully hard to believe news, but it's terribly good news. And it is news, let's be clear. You know, the word gospel, the kind of churchy word we use to describe, to, uh, describe what's up with Jesus, means literally in Greek, good news. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation that something has happened. The gospel is not our good idea about Jesus. It's not our loving feelings about Jesus. It is the good news of Jesus. Something has happened. But there are a few things that I really love about the way that the gospel writers get us into this good news. What we hear in their witness. What we overhear in their witness. And the first thing that they make perfectly clear is that no one understood what happened. No one understood the logistics of resurrection. Not one of the gospel writers even takes a stab at trying to explain what went on in those early hours of that first day of the week. I mean, each of them mostly shrugs their shoulders and tells us as well as they can that what they can tell us is where there was supposed to be a dead body, there is no dead body. Nobody in the story understood the logistics of resurrection. They did not understand, but they believed. And they believed not because they were sort of naive, pre-scientific people, not like us, all modern and enlightened. They were just as aware that, as we are, that dead people tend to stay that way. And of course, they had a different worldview, but that worldview did not include resurrection. Now, one of the things that annoys me more as I get older is that all over the world, there are churches where someone is trying to either explain or explain away the resurrection. And this happens kind of every Easter, you know. It's two sides of the same scientistic coin. Science is beautiful, wonderful. I love science. But scientism is that this notion that if it can't be measured in a lab, if we don't kind of understand it, it can't possibly be true. And it's as if we either have to make the wonder of this day conform to a kind of scientific explanation as if it makes perfect sense, or we have to get up and assure each other that we don't really believe this stuff, and in the end it's all just a a useful self-help metaphor, and we know better than to take it seriously. And and I get it, I, I do. I would love a more manageable explanation. That would be really helpful in my line of work. But I'm also really and increasingly resistant to the notion that God can't do anything that would baffle us. You know, I'm resistant increasingly to the idea that God can't do any more than we can possibly explain or expect. Because, you know, frankly, a God who can't do more than we can explain or expect, more than we can ask or imagine, isn't really worth getting out of bed for, certainly not on a Sunday morning. This is a God not worth going to the beach to stand in the rain at seven o'clock in the morning, that's for sure. Now, the witness of the gospel writers is just this that on the first week, God did what God does, which is more than we could ask or imagine. Their testimony is this we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That's what Luke wants us to know from what we just heard today, and he wastes no time trying to explain it because he doesn't understand it any more than we do. And I find that very comforting. We don't have to understand to enter in. We don't need an explanation in order to have an experience. I love that the gospel accounts of the resurrection 
uh, nobody understands. And I love that nobody was ready for it. Right? No one, not even the women who, went to, uh, who stuck around when all the men had run away. Right? I mean, yes, their love outlasted and outmatched their fear of being associated with them, and that's worth paying attention to. But they didn't think he wasn't going to be dead when they showed up with their arms full of burial spices. They paid attention to the tomb where the tomb was, not so that they could come back and see if what he said was going to be true, that he was going to die and then be raised. They came, these ones who followed him and listened to him, who learned from him and loved him to the brutal end, fully expecting to do what they're supposed to do for a loved one who has died. They are so convinced that they will find nothing more than they were expecting, that they need divine messengers to remind them of what he had said. This is so weird that we need angels. No fewer than three times Jesus told his disciples that this was going to happen, that he would be crucified and then he would be raised on the third day. And no one believed it. Not one of them. Not one of them was ready for it. And I find that awfully comforting too, frankly. I think it's part of the reason we need to come back here year after year to tell the story again, to shuffle back to the tomb with the women, expecting what we know to expect, only to find something absolutely other. We need a reminder of his words. We need the reminder that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead because it's easy to forget. It's easy to disbelieve. It's easier by far to live as though it's not really true. If it's not true, then we can continue to lean on our own understanding of how things are. If it's not true, then we can fool ourselves into thinking that we've got things kind of under control. If it's not true, then it's much easier to keep God at a distance, inviting God maybe to bless our best efforts now and again, but not much more. Now, if it's not true, we can do what the women do. We can join the Marys and Joanna and uh, the others in doing kind and loving things for Jesus of blessed memory and then kind of leave it at that. We can get back to what we understand and what we expect, but that's not Luke's testimony. Luke's testimony is that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, and it changes everything. It undermines our every expectation. It's the third thing I love about what the, how the gospel writers tell it. They all do it in their own kind of way, each one of them, but there's no question that they all know to their cores that no one understood it, no one expected it, and it changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The women those first preachers of the gospel model it, right? They, they show up fully expecting one thing and then they have to go and tell something entirely different. The world, even their God, is not at all what they had assumed. And of course they're met with skepticism, right? I mean, how could it be otherwise? The way things are has a tight hold on most of us, on most of our imaginations. I have to admit that if I was there on that first morning, the best thing that I can hope for myself is that maybe I would have been like Peter and run to the tomb to see for myself, but that might be wishful thinking. I think more likely I'd roll my eyes and go back to bed. And I, I love the implication that, that Peter may not have forgotten Jesus' words. Something made him run to the tomb to see if it was really true. So he didn't forget Jesus' words, he just didn't believe them. And I think it's a bit of grace to know that even the disciple on 
uh, whom Jesus said he was going to build the church on. You know, the rock of the church, Peter, thought that the things that his teacher and Lord taught were too good to be true. I mean, he really ought to have been waiting at the tomb, camped out and counting on the resurrection. But instead, he's holed up with the others, with the mourners assuming that all is lost. That's all just another failed dream. But at least when the women bring the news, he runs to check it out. The rest of them seem kind of committed to the idea that the women are telling an idle tale. <laughs> the, the Greek word that gets translated in the translation Levi just read as idle tale, I mean, it means nonsense. Right? Idle tale is kind of an old-timey, uh, highfalutin sort of way of saying it, I think. But I actually kind of like idle tale. It's as if it's a story that does nothing, right? It changes nothing. It's idle. It just sits there on a shelf. It's nothing to get out of our seats for. That's what they think this is, just the stammering of grief. It's an idle tale. And it's easy to get caught among Peter and the others, somewhere between hearing what Jesus says and not really believing it, and thinking or at least living as though it's too good to be true. It's not a bad story, but it doesn't do much. That, as much as anything, is why we come back year over year to remind each other again and again. Because the fact is that the truth of it changes everything. It means that Jesus is who he says he is. It means that his will and way is God's will and way in the world, and that nothing in heaven, earth, or hell is going to keep that will from flourishing. It means that the way things are, what we're told is the way things are, is not really the way things are even if they do have a stranglehold on our imagination. It means that the way of Jesus in the world is the way things really are, the way of love and justice, the way of mercy and peace, of generosity and hope. That is how things really are and will be. It means that the ways of sin and death and brokenness that binds and weighs us down and the systems and structures that uphold and perpetuate it are doomed. It means that not only will sin and death not get the last word on us, but they will choke on their tongues. It means that there is no length to which God will not go to redeem and to restore this world, to love it into wholeness. It means that even the grave is not the end. It means that there is nowhere that God cannot bring life. It means that far from being an idle tale, this is news that changes everything. That we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead changes everything. And to live otherwise makes no sense at all. If Jesus is raised from the dead, to live otherwise is a fool's errand. And you know, mercifully, even for Jesus' closest disciples, this is another bit of grace, I think. The women and men who walked with him day in and day out, who looked into his eyes, who hugged him and ate with him, even the ones for whom he will show up, having been dead and now alive, even for them it takes a while to digest this new reality. It's a bit of grace to know that, that while it takes a while for them to get it into their bones, into their guts, it worked out in their lives. You know, these folks are still in need of grace, just like we are, but they do begin to let this news have its way. They begin to work out what it means to know not just what Jesus says, but to do it. They begin to have an imagination for a world not conformed to the patterns of sin and death, but transformed by and for love and life. 
They begin to understand what it looks, uh, that what looks like power and glory in this world is paltry compared to the way of the one who is crucified and risen, the one who loved us to the end and then threw it. You know, I love that Luke doesn't try to explain the resurrection. What he does instead is he writes another book called the book of Acts. It's Luke part two. And he tells us the story of this gaggle of nobodies caught up in the love of God, a love fiercer than death for this world. He tells us the story of sinners and tax collectors, of fishermen and prostitutes, of theology professors and busboys, of businesswomen and pimply-faced teenagers who start to take seriously the good news that we live in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, a world in which God will get God's way and nothing, not even death, will stop it. And Luke tells us that this improbable band of no-names and ne'er-do-wells turned the world upside down, Acts chapter 17. These Christians are coming to town and they're turning the world upside down. Which is really to say they turned it right side up. They caused all sorts of holy mischief. They got into all manner of gracious trouble, letting the way of Jesus have its way in every corner of their lives. And they weren't left to do it alone. They were lit up by the Holy Spirit, we're told, just like we're meant to be, but Pentecost isn't for a few weeks yet. In the days following that first day of the week, the first day of new creation, I imagine them having to do the reimagining work to take seriously what it means if the way of Jesus is the way things really are, and that not even death will stop it being fulfilled. If the things he says about what matters are true, if his commandments and commissions were serious to love and to heal, to forgive and restore, to be agents of flourishing life where it seems like life is impossible. If he really meant what he said, that he will be with us and for us come hell or high water, and all he wants from us is the same. And that's how we'll see a new world come to life in the shell of the old. And he seems to think that we can do it. And I think that's our task, right? Not to understand or explain the resurrection into submission. Not to pretend as though we're ready for it or as though we've seen it all before. Not to pull it out for another Sunday or even a season and then stick it back on the shelf to collect dust until next year. I think our task starting today is to learn, lean in and wonder, to imagine and reimagine what it will look like for us to live and move and have our being. Whatever we do, wherever we are, whatever we, wherever we find ourselves, in a world in which Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. The Lord is risen. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.